beautiful song communicating such great truths. Um, before we start our time, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for our time to gather this morning. As the song mentioned that you, you are the wonderful, merciful Savior. We need to be reminded of that today. It's, it's for you that our hearts long for. It's for you that our hearts were made for. It's for it's you that our hearts should rejoice in. May that be so today. Help us to, to, to hear with the intent to, to apply what's communicated through your word. Thank you for being a wonderful Savior, Jesus. Thank you for being a gracious and merciful Savior, Jesus. Help us with our time this morning. Help me, Lord. Um, pray that your, your spirit will enable me, God, to, to communicate what has been prepared faithfully and clearly so that your people would be edified and that your people would look to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning again. Good morning again. So... For those who uh, attend, obviously, WBC, you know that I'm not Nathan. <laughs> I'm not Nathan Williams. Uh, I'm Marcel Howard. And for those that are visiting, certainly, certainly glad that you all are here visiting and with us this morning as we are spending time in God's word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, can you, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. And um, I'm really excited about, excited about what we're going to cover this morning within the book of Revelation. Um, for, for those that are new to Woodhaven, uh, so every time that I've preached within the past year, it's, it's fallen within the category of, we call it a Dear Church series. And it's coming from the, the seven letters, uh, the letters that are written to the seven churches in Revelation. So I'm not dealing with the entire book, although there are aspects of the, the entire book that does impact what John is communicating to these churches. But again, we're just kind of uh, fitting ourselves right in uh, each of these letters. And uh, in the past, we've covered the letter to the church in Ephesus, and we've covered the letter to the church in Smyrna, and we've covered Pergamum. And today, again, we're covering uh, the letter to the church in Thyatira. Try saying that 10 times. No, you don't have to try it right now. Thyatira. You know, we live in a day and time where there, there, there have been noticeable changes within culture, and these changes have, have brought about a, a barrage of new virtues, and these new virtues, they invade uh, multiple aspects of society. And not only are they invading these, these, these aspects of society, but they're also creating new norms, right? There's a, there's a new normal now in 2019. And in some way, these changes have, they've been helpful, and there, there's some redemptive aspects to these changes, but in other ways, oh, they've been horrible, right? It's been disheartening to see where the culture is going. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take much for us to, to identify the ways in which these virtues are expressing themselves and manifesting themselves. 
Uh, we see them expressed in, uh, you know, just academia. We see them expressed with major corporations. I don't know if you guys are aware of the, the messaging from uh, the, the corporation uh, Gillette uh, and what they're, what they're wanting to communicate in terms of what our humanity is about, right? They've, they've jumped on the, 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 the movement, the tide of uh, this, this gender craziness that's happening, if I can say that. And not only have they jumped on that, that boat, but um, Victoria's Secret, right? Victoria's Secret, they, they too have, uh, they're standing in arms. And these are major corporations. They're standing, they're standing in arms with the, with the cultural moment. And again, it doesn't, take, it doesn't take much to identify where things are going. Uh, we also see some of these virtues and the impact that they're having. We see them in uh, theologically liberal circles, particularly theologically liberal uh, churches. Uh, you have churches of all stripes, right? You've got your affirming churches, your inclusive churches, you've got your social justice churches, and they come in all shapes and forms. And again, we, we see what's happening within the culture, and certainly we, there should be a response. I mean, our Lord calls us to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Now, we don't try to escape the world, right? But, but we, we should be light and salt in the world that God has providentially placed us in. It's fallen, absolutely. But we, we, we should be light and salt. We shouldn't try to escape and uh, try to, you know, just distance ourselves and disconnect ourselves from engaging people. And I, I believe that uh, you know, when we think about the historical moment that's happening today, we think about where the culture is going, is going I think that regardless of where, where the ball drops, our Lord desires us to be faithful. Our Lord desires us to, to have a response to the culture that we're in, a response that honors him, a response that reflects what's good and beautiful and true, a response that makes much of him, and I believe that our, in our text today, uh, within the letter to Thyatira, we're gonna we're gonna look at some some ingredients. Again, we're gonna look at some ingredients. We'll be reminded of ingredients to what faithfulness within the culture looks like. Okay, what does faithfulness in the culture, not just our culture, but all cultures, what does that look like? So, if you turn with me to Revelation chapter two. Uh, we're going to work through uh, the, the letter to the church uh, in Thyatira. Uh, that's in verse 18, and uh, we, we systematically work through each of these letters. So bear with me as we uh, consider what our Lord has to say to his church. Um, now, in the first verse, we, we, we arrive at a self-description, and I'm going to take some time to read through um, this self-description. But with all of the letters, there are self-descriptions that are given to each church. And this self-description is a self-description of the risen Lord. It's a, a self-description of Jesus. In following suit, John writes, he says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, verse 18, says, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, 
and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And again, this is a really interesting self-description. I want to stop there because this self-description is coming to a, a city that uh, when, you, when, when we think about the, the background of the city, it's the least important of the seven cities. It's the least impressive. Uh, and it is, it's the least well-known. But it's interesting that this city, Thyatira, it's known for two accomplishments. The first accomplishment is their commercial enterprise. And the second accomplishment is their manufacturing and marketing. Kind of smells of Detroit, doesn't it? All right? Commercial enterprise, manufacturing, and marketing. Right? But then they're not exporting cars, though. But what's interesting, because of these accomplishments, is that uh, there, there's a distinguishing characteristic that this church has. And the distinguishing characteristic that it has is that it is home to the largest amount of trade guilds in that area. Right? And the trade guilds are uh, they're, they're akin to our, our modern-day uh, unions. Anybody a part of a union? You don't have to raise your hand. You're like, yeah! <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand. But they're akin to our modern-day unions. But, and, and these pose a, a really special problem for Christians. So we have this self-description, right? and these, these trade guilds are, are posing a, a special problem for Christians. Here's why. Because if, these, if, if Christians in Thyatira aren't participating within the trade guilds, here's what happens. They are marginalized. They are judged. They're, they're at an economic disadvantage. They're marginalized. And I think it's critical for the church in Thyatira to know that this letter, when we think about the intro, this self-description, it is coming from, it reads, the Son of God. It's coming from the Son of God. And this is the, the one who, who is the only mediator of their salvation. And I want you to hear me say this. It comes from a heart of profound concern for this church. Our Lord, in this self-description, when we consider who, who he is, he, he loves this church. It's from the very throne room of God. And whatever, I would say, that whatever the, the appearances are from Thyatira's finite vantage point, Whatever the appearance is, they need to understand, we need to understand that God is in control and that God is king. And we consider the plight of these Christians who are seeming, going seemingly unnoticed. The one who has eyes like a flame of fire. These eyes, they penetrate through every facade. These eyes penetrate through every defense. These eyes search the mind and heart of all. And these eyes, we were given, we're given uh, kind of an aspect of who has those eyes, who, who this individual is. We have that in the self-description. I think that's helpful for us as we move through and we consider the ingredients to a faithful witness. So let's look at our first ingredient to a faithful witness within culture. We're gonna see this unpacked in verse 19. It was necessary for me to uh, walk through that self-description. That self-description is helpful. Uh, it, it helps to frame everything that comes within the entirety of the letter. But in verse 19, we see the first ingredient to a faithful witness. Verse 19 reads, I know your works, your love, and your faith and service, 
and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And this is a commendation that Jesus is rendering to this church. And this contains our first ingredient, which is we need to remember the church's spiritual work. When we consider the culture that we're in, we consider the culture that Thyatira has been placed in, they need to remember the work they've been called to. And we, we see signs of grace uh, and life in this church in verse 19. This, this church is extending and expending themselves for one another. They are, they are a really unique church because if we consider the church, uh, the church in Ephesus, everything that the, the church in Ephesus is praised for doctrinally, it, it, Jesus praises them. He commends them. But also he ends up praising them for what the church in Ephesus lacked. This is a weighty commendation from our Lord. And the, the, the church... Again, they're on mission. They remember the work that they've been called to. They're, they're not wasting time arguing about the color of the carpet. They're not wasting time squabbling over the type of wood that they're going to use for the pew. They're not, they're not doing that. They're not caught up in the trivial, the trivialities, right? But this church is pursuing the spiritual work that they've been called to in a fallen world. And they're demonstrating it. The text says they're demonstrating it. Looking back at verse 19, they're demonstrating a love a faith, a service, and a patient endurance that is rooted in the authority of Jesus. They're, they're demonstrating a love that's rooted in Christ, a faith that's rooted in Christ, a patient endurance that is rooted in Christ. And then I want you to consider, like, so Jesus adds to this commendation, right? In verse 19, he says that your latter works exceed the first. So he's laying it on thick right now, right? Laying it on thick. What a compliment from our Lord to his bride. What a compliment, right? You're doing this, and then along with that, you're growing in some significant ways. You're believing the gospel. You're behaving the gospel. There's growth. But you know, as we read further in this letter, the tone of the letter is going to change because we're going to see that this church had some blind spots. So that's the first ingredient. Remember the church's spiritual work. When we consider faithfulness in the culture, we need to remember the church's spiritual work. And let's look at verse 20. The next verse has stated that the, the, the tone of the letter changes, and Jesus, he's speaking to a blind spot that this church has. It says... But I have this against you. Uh, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods that are sacrificed to idols. This is quite the indictment. You've got this good thing going on, but I have this against you. And this, this indictment can, uh, leads, uh, brings us to consider the, the second ingredient, which is recognizing the church's spiritual danger. We need to recognize the spiritual dangers that exist within the culture we've been placed in. We can't just go on, we can't just go on autopilot. We can't say, you know, I'm retired. 
No, no, you don't age out of the Great Commission. You don't. You do not age out of the Great Commission. And you don't, you don't age out of having an ear and hearing what the Spirit says to the church. You don't age out of discernment, right? But again, this ingredient to faithful witness in the culture is that we recognize the church's spiritual danger. What's interesting is that their spiritual, their, their, their spiritual danger, what's happening is that Thyatira, they failed to recognize their tolerance, specifically their tolerance of the woman Jezebel. And this tolerance, it's undiscerning and it's blindly affirming. It's, it's undiscerning and blindly affirming. What I want to do is just pause really quick and just say that while we had the commendation in verse 18, and now we have this indictment, right, in verse 19, I just want to just say uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing when we think about, it's encouraging to think about how much, how much Jesus loves his bride. Think about that. Jesus loves his bride such. He loves her enough to confront the dangers of her sin. He loves her enough to do that. And the reason as to why he, he, like, he wants to confront the dangers of her sin is that he, he wants the church to rejoice in his truth. He wants the church to rejoice in this truth. And that's exactly what he's doing to, uh, to Thyatira and pointing out their spiritual danger. They've, they've failed to see that their toleration of the woman Jezebel uh, is destroying the work of the gospel. They failed to see that. It's destroying the work of the gospel. And it's interesting that he uses this term, this Old Testament term, Jezebel. Uh, this, is, is this, this woman Jezebel is like the, old, the, uh, the Jezebel from the Old Testament, the, the very Jezebel that married uh, King Ahab. This is 1 Kings 16 through 22. And she, she leads the people of God to sin and compromising and worshiping the Baals. Not the bells, but bell, <laughs> not the bells, <laughs> but worshiping bells. But then also she, in, 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 in this compromise is also a, a denying of, uh, of God's power and his covenant grace. This is the same, this is the same Jezebel, if you're, if you're familiar with the story. She was pushed out of a tower. She was trampled on by horses and she was eaten up by, anybody know the answer? Dogs. Yeah, she was eaten up by dogs. And this influence that the woman Jezebel is having in the church, it's a spiritual danger, just like her Old Testament namesake. What a comparison, all right? What a comparison, all right? Could you imagine this being aired on Facebook? <laughs> that comparison, the woman Jezebel, like, wait a second, Jezebel, right? That's quite the comparison. It's not a, not a good situation for this church. It's a dire circumstance that this church is in. And Jesus, he's not, he's not calling this church to affirm Jezebel. He's not calling this church to dialogue with Jezebel. He's not calling them to, hey, just going to wait and see what happens with Jezebel. Let's just see if we can outlive her. No, he wants them to have discipline and to deal with her and to confront her. Here's why. Because it's personal for, for Jesus. And when we read in verse 20, look at verse 20 again. 
say it's personal and it's all about his glory, says that Jezebel is teaching and seducing my servants to do some horrible things. She's teaching and seducing my servants. It's personal, all right? My servants. I love what Sinclair Ferguson states about this particular passage. Uh, when we consider just recognizing the church's spiritual danger, uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, uh, you know, tolerance can be a virtue when it's the expression of a heart of mercy, grace, and love. But it can be a vice when there is the toleration of Jezebel. Again, it can be a vice when there's the toleration of Jezebel. I, I don't want us to miss our Lord's mercy in, in this indictment because as, as, as it flows, as the text flows, we look in verse, in, in verse 21, Jezebel is, she, she's given this woman, name is probably not Jezebel specifically, but that's her comparing her to, to her Old Testament namesake. But this woman is given an opportunity to repent. She's given an opportunity to repent. And I, I believe it just, it's, it's merciful, so merciful of our Lord to be, to be patient with his enemies. Look at how he's being patient with her. Right? You need to repent. He's patient with her. And it's so gracious of him to, for, to extend forgiveness as he's done for us. When we read further, we see that she's given that opportunity to repent, but she, she hardens her heart. She, she chooses not to. Uh, and she's hardening her heart against the very ministry that Christ has instituted for her good. And what is that ministry? Is the ministry of the church. All right. Jesus has instituted that ministry for her good and for our good. And Jesus is faulting this church for tolerating this woman. We need to keep in mind that tolerating Jezebel is not a mark of their faithfulness. It's a mark of their unfaithfulness. It's a mark of unfaithfulness. They're tolerating uh, a woman who is bringing ideas and teaching that oppose the gospel. And it aims to undermine and destabilize and overthrow biblical truth. That's happening in our day. There are ideas that have crept into the church that, that aim to undermine, destabilize, and oppose the work of the gospel, the truth of Jesus. Verse 22 through 23 spells out the judgment that Jesus has, has reserved for um, Jezebel and her followers. And the judgment reads this way. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold... I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. It's quite the judgment, but I would say the judgment is fitting for the offense. And here's why, because God is passionate about his glory. 
If you don't hear me say anything, you hear me say that God is passionate about his glory in his church, in his people. He's passionate about it. And Jezebel's teaching is in direct opposition to the gospel. It's in direct opposition to it. Let's look at the third ingredient um, to faithful witness within the culture. Uh, and we're going to work our way through to the end of the letter. <clears throat> and we've got our final ingredient here. And that's to rejoice in the church's spiritual promise. We remember the church's spiritual work. We remember what we've been called to do. We recognize the spiritual dangers. But then we rejoice in the promises. Rejoice in the promises. Verse 24 and 25 reads, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. And this text tells us that there were members of this church who, 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 who didn't drink the Kool-Aid, right? They weren't lost in the sauce. I'm going to stop there, right? But there, there are members of this church who weren't seduced by the woman Jezebel. And Jesus tells them to hold fast. Hold fast. It's quite the term there. Hold fast. I'm going to get you all to say that with me. Everybody say, hold fast. One more time, just to make sure that some of you who are doing those sanctified yawns, you're awake. Everybody say, hold fast. Now, what did they have that they were holding fast to that others did not have? Well, they had a right understanding of the contours and the content of the gospel. Again, contours content of the gospel. They understood the, the, the grammar that comes along with the gospel. They understood the scope of the gospel. And it's here that Jesus is he's telling them to, to hold fast what they know foundationally of the grace of God, to hold it firm. And I, I just want to say this in relation to holding fast. When, 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 when scripture says hold fast, we, we, we don't hold fast and then, you know, we transact ignorance. No, holding fast is not to be confused with ignorance. Holding fast means just, like, means just that. We, we hold fast and we, we sink ourselves. We, we, we sink and settle into our foundation. That foundation is the gospel. I believe that when we hold fast to the message of the gospel, and the truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture, it leads to awe and delight in the promises of God. The one affects the other. Awe and delight. And this awe and delight is expressed in faith and obedience. That's, that's, where, that's what hold fast, when we hold fast, that's what it leads to. Faith and obedience, awe and delight. As this letter ends, Jesus reminds the church that certainly rejoice in the promises of God, but their rejoicing is twofold, and we're almost done. The first reason that they're to rejoice is found in verses 26 and 27, and it reads, The one who conquers and the one who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself, I myself have received authority from my father. Now, what's, what's interesting is that there's, Jesus is using this language from, from Psalm 2. And if you're familiar with Psalm 2, right, uh, why do the nations rage? The nations are raging against God's anointed, the one that he's, he's, he's situated on the throne to rule and reign. And he's using this, this, this language, and this language in Psalms 2, it does point to Jesus' authority in his rule, in his reign. But what's interesting about verses 26 and 27 is that the focus is on our rule with Christ. It's, it, the focus is on our rule. So when we think about the first point, like, so why, 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 why can we rejoice? Well, it's twofold. The first reason as to why we can rejoice is that we will rule with Christ. We'll rule with Christ. How many of you guys own a home? Anybody own a home? That's good. I don't own, own a home. I just moved into a home. Uh, we're renting in Allen Park. Not going to give you the uh, the address because it's written in the <laughs> in 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 and we've we've got it in the bulletin and some other other places as well. But also, I'm not going to say it out loud because this is being recorded. So, all right. But I, I do know this: while you own your home, you don't really own own your home. All right. While certainly your rule and your authority has been exerted, you don't you don't. Technically, because this, the city tells you what you have to do with that home, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you, if you own a home and you're like, yeah, I own this home and, and my, it's my reign and my rule. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. Here's where I'm going with this. All right. We get to rule. And it's not partial rule. It's not a somewhat rule. It's not three quarters of a rule. It is rule with Jesus. And that's reason to rejoice. That's better than home ownership. It is. Right? Some of you are like, sure, buddy. Wait till you buy your first home. <laughs> but we get to rule with Jesus. We have an elevated status of reigning with Christ. And this is reason to rejoice. Here's our second reason, because again, it said the rejoicing is twofold. Our second reason to rejoice, and it's seen in verse 28, and we're almost done. Verse 28 reads, and I will give him the morning star. So we have a reason to rejoice in the fact that we get to rule with Christ. But our second reason to rejoice is that we're given something. Now, what exactly is the morning star? Are they waxing poetic here so that we just, you know, it's kind of ambiguous? No, it's not. If we go to Revelation chapter 22 and look at verse 16, it reads, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I'm the bright and morning star. Hopefully you're catching where I'm going. Our second reason to rejoice is that Jesus is the morning star. Jesus himself is our reward. That's why we can rejoice in the promises of God. Because Jesus, his, his worth is supreme. And it should be valued above all. 
And he and he alone is our reward. And regardless of what what the circumstance is within the culture that God has providentially placed us in, God has given us his best by giving us himself through his son. God didn't hold back. Remember in the garden, there was the notion that God was holding back. He hasn't. God hasn't held back. And when we think about the gift of Jesus, the gift of salvation, we think about our redemption. Christ is our reward. He indeed is our reward. As we close this morning, uh, my hope um, is that, and I know there's one more verse. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear. But the Spirit says to the churches in verse 29. But again, I, my, my hope this morning is that we would consider what verse 29 is saying and that we would hear. We would hear with the intent to apply and obey. That we would hear what the Spirit says to the church and that it, it would transact itself in faith and obedience. We'd remember the great work that we've been called to as our Lord's bride that we would recognize the spiritual dangers that we, that we will encounter as we pursue that great work, and that we would rejoice in the, in, the incomparable, the, the unshakable promises of God, our great King. Let's pray. Father, you are certainly worthy to be praised, and we are just thankful, God, that uh, you haven't left us without your witness, particularly in your scriptures, in the word. And we're, we're grateful that you have uh, communicated to us, that you have spoken to us in a very unique way through your word. God, I pray that with what we've covered this morning and considering uh, the ingredients to a, of a faithful witness within, within our fallen world, God, I pray that we would remember the work that you've called us to, that we would uh, recognize the spiritual dangers that exist, and that we would rejoice in the promises of our great redemption, this, this salvation that is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And I pray, God, that if, if, if there are people here that, that, are, that don't know of your great salvation, I pray, God, that you would draw them to yourself and prompt them to come. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You could stand.